My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am excited today to talk about one of my favorite things on the planet. Um, All of you out in the audience know that I am a uh, Viper fanatic, and and I truly love uh, these Appalachian Mountains uh, where I live. But the other ecosystem in the world that has always captivated me are rainforests. And as all of you know by now, you know, I, I've made many, many trips uh, into the rainforests of, of Latin America, uh, going on different research projects, uh, going on different adventures, looking for rare snake species. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about rainforests and we're going to talk about it with two people who know quite a bit more about them than me. So this is going to be uh, educational um, as well as entertaining uh, for myself. And so I am sitting here talking to uh, James Lewis with the Rainforest Trust. Welcome, James. Hey, Chris. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah. And I'm here with Jean Tarrant. Uh, who is in South Africa, and we will dive a little bit into uh, what she does and who she works for in a little bit, because I am not ex- even exactly clear on that. So I'm excited to learn, but welcome, Sean. Thank you so much, Chris, and thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going to start out, and, and I want to talk about rainforests uh, in general, as I mentioned, I've been to them quite a bit, but I have nowhere near the experience uh, that, that you both have working in them, working to conserve them. And, and so I guess we'll start with, with you, James. And the, the first thing I want to ask you is learn a little bit about you. So where are you sitting today and what are you doing? Meaning, meaning like, what's your job relative to rainforests, to snakes, to reptiles and amphibians, and uh, who you working for and, and where are you sitting? Sure. Great. Thanks, Chris. So, well, as you said, my name is James Lewis, and, and I'm based in, in Warrington, Virginia. Um, and I work for an organization called Rainforest Trust. Rainforest Trust has been around for 33 years now, and our focus has always been the creation of new protected areas. Now, as an organization, much of our history has been focused on creating protected areas within rainforests, uh, a real focus on the tropical Andes, Um, but, but we do protect habitat in other areas as well. We've helped support protected areas in Chad, where there's there's hardly a tree around. Um, We've also worked in creating marine protected areas. So it's it's a wide breadth. But really at the heart of what we're doing is rainforest conservation. That's the vast majority of of where our funding goes. And sorry, go ahead. 
No, no. I was just gonna. I'm just curious how you how you ended up getting there. I mean, everybody yeah. is is children. I think many people around the world, you know, think about rainforests mm-hmm. and and you hear about them on TV or you know see see some type of like animated movie that's in this setting. But they're just these far away uh, places that for many of us are are you know mm-hmm. they're like that. They're they're a place on a television show. And so how, how did you get uh, to the point where you're working for an organization that's focused on their conservation? Have you always had this vision as you developed your career? I want to work on rainforests. Perhaps not rainforests, but I was really fortunate in my upbringing. I traveled around the world with my parents to many, many different countries within about Two weeks of being born, I was shipped off to Venezuela. We moved to Mexico. And then eventually we ended up in Africa. And I spent about 10 years between the ages of 10 and 20 growing up in Malawi and Kenya. And that just, that that set me on my course. Um, in, in Malawi, we would spend the weekends visiting the, the, the national parks and the game reserves um, and, and got a real sense for, for the impact of protected areas. But it wasn't when we moved to Kenya, what I started, I started getting bored and started thinking, I don't want to just sit in these cars and look at wildlife. There's something else to be doing here. And so I started volunteering for for some of the national parks there and some of the private reserves and and was really building this this knowledge and understanding of of how protected areas work. But what really stood out to me as, as an Englishman in Africa was that my role wasn't to be working in these protected areas. It was, I could bring more to those protected areas by, by basically raising funding and, and directing those resources from, from the rich countries that I was in to the places where they needed them most. So even at, at 15 years old, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to be supporting these areas that I really loved and really inspired me, but it wasn't going to be working within them. It was going to be, be from afar. And, um, and I went to school in, in the UK where I studied conservation management, uh, both as my undergrad and as my, my master's. Um, and in between doing my undergrad and my master's, I started to get a little bit more experience, um, setting up volunteer groups, but um, after finishing my undergrad, I worked as an environmental consultant, and I did that for about four years, at which point I realized that, that I had two choices. One, I could pack my bags and leave and, and start to travel the world again and get back to those habitats that, that meant so much to me, um, or I was going to be an environmental consultant for the rest of my life. Now, I loved that work. It was incredible. The people I was working with was amazing, but it, it wasn't what filled my soul. And so one day I just started applying for jobs and somebody offered me a job in Costa Rica running some research projects. So within two weeks, I packed up and sold everything and, and headed out the door. And that that really set me on my career into international conservation. Um, and before long, I'd, I'd been... Um, I was, I, I met my wife there, who we then went off and did our master's together. Um, and then I ended up going to Belize with her and working with the Wildlife Conservation Society. Um, and, and we worked on the marine program there. And then I moved to the U.S. 
and worked for Conservation Conservation International, where I really started to get a love for amphibians. So I was on their amphibian program there, and that's that's where I met Sean. Um, shortly after after joining Conservation International, we were providing. I think we provided John a, a, a grant shortly after after uh, arriving there, um, and and I went to visit some of the programs that, that were happening in South Africa, um, and. And yeah, the rest is history, really. I, I moved across a couple other organizations. Um, but yeah, one step after another, really drawing me closer to working in the rainforest, closer to amphibians and reptiles, um, and really seeing the, the huge opportunity that, that the world has in making a difference for amphibians and reptiles. It's, it's really been a cool experience. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I, I think we probably met originally when you were maybe in your. CI or your conservation international stretch through IUCN, yeah. uh, which listeners will know we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, I didn't realize you had worked for WCS. I, I originally, I worked for WCS before creating the Orient Society. So oh, fantastic. Uh, small world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Well, can you, why don't you tell us a little bit about rainforests in general, like I, sure. I mean, I'm talking. We don't need to go into incredible depth, but like generally, how do they distribute around the world? Um, you know, the real basic characteristics mm-hmm. of any rainforest you might find on the planet. Um, why they might be a topic that we're interested in talking about on a podcast mm-hmm. like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Sure. Um, so. So when you think about rainforests, what we're really thinking about is almost exclusively this band across the tropics of these really lush, dense rainforests. Now, there are a few rainforests that, that extend outside of the tropics. We have some amazing ones on the West Coast here in the U.S. Um, but, but most of the rainforests, at least that, 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 that we're working with, um, fall within the tropics. And these are areas of, of dense intact contiguous forests that receive huge amounts of rain each year um and, and that's 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 what you think of when you think of rainforests you think of big trees you think of a lot of rain and and i think we've all spent plenty of time in in rainforests and those are the things that, that really hit us is that, that that intense humidity that the constant rain you know the first time i went to the rainforest somebody said yeah we've got two seasons here one is the wet season and the other one is the even wetter season and and, and that's what it's like it's a it, it's an incredible incredible place to to be um so stretch across the tropics the big ones that, that that we think of most commonly, uh, the the Amazon rainforest, that that covers the the, the Amazon basin and into Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, and then the Guyana Shields as well. Then we have moving into Africa, we have the Congo, um, Gabon, the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and then in Asia, we have a whole stretch of rainforest going all across. One of the most important ones is probably the ones in the island of Papua, um, where it's this huge intact rainforest that that very little is being done to conserve right now. So it's probably one of the most interesting places to watch in terms of rainforest conservation moving forward. There's a, there's a huge need to do something there. And it's so intact. It's, it's a real rarity. That that 
there is still forest like that in existence. So it should be a global priority um, for us to think about conserving. Um, so, so why are they important? They're important for a number of reasons. One, you know, there's the just the role they play in in controlling our climate. Um, they're, they're they're often referred to as the lungs of the earth. So they're important for the carbon cycle. They are important for controlling and and uh, for for impacting climate, impacting our, our weather patterns. Um, and so as we start to lose those forests, what we're seeing is changes in weather patterns, both locally. Um, so in Brazil, we're seeing really direct changes in weather patterns there. Um, but also globally, these forests are so huge. They're releasing so much oxygen. Uh, they're releasing so much moisture into the atmosphere that that significantly reducing them and we're losing them at an incredible rate is bound to have an impact on our, on our environment and on our climate. Um, there's also other fun things like the fact that so many medicines have come from the rainforest. There are so many other products that come out of the rainforest. And again, we're losing them at such an incredible rate that what are, what are we losing that we don't even know about? Um, so that, that's high level, why, why the rainforests are important and where they are. And then you get into the species. Like if we want to talk about conserving species, what half the world's biodiversity is within rainforests, it's absolutely incredible. You go to a single plant in a rainforest, you flip over the leaves, you're finding dozens of different insects. And then you start to go around in the leaf litter and there's there's frogs in there there's snakes there's a whole set of other invertebrates and then there's all the stuff that you don't see and that's just in one small bush scale that up across this this huge huge area and it's just full of the most incredible species you could possibly imagine and then some you couldn't imagine yeah and and certainly talking about snakes uh you know the diversity of snakes and rainforests around the world is is uh just incredible. And we've talked about that in depth in some, some other episodes, but uh, I think it is important to note for, for our audience that uh, rainforests on a global scale are one of the most, if not the most important ecosystem in a general sense for, for snake diversity as well. So, well, great. Well, so you mentioned that we're losing them at an incredible rate. Do you have any superlatives there? Any numbers, whether it's even just specific, say, to the Amazon or global, yeah. whatever it might be? But Yeah, yeah. You know, we're losing, I think it's about 80,000 acres of rainforest every day. So that's an area size, twice the size of San Francisco. So th these are not small areas we're losing. And it's it's incredible to think that that I think since 2014, we've been seeing deforestation rates continually increase. And it's amazing to think there is that much rainforest out there that we can continue on that track. Um, the last few years in Brazil, it's it's been it's been really bad. Uh, we've seen a lot of increases in cattle ranching. We've seen a lot of increases in the fires. And of course, the fires aren't what what lose the rainforest. You know, it's it's what comes before the fires, and then the forests sweep through. Um, a, a couple of years ago. The, the the fires in the in the Amazon were really frontline news for for a long time, um, and those are still continuing. And the Amazon is not the only place we're seeing those fires. 
you look at Central Africa, um, there's an amazing tool that, that I encourage all the listeners to go and check out. And it's called Global Forest Watch. And Global Forest Watch takes satellite data um, globally on a, on a very regular basis. Some of it's really high resolution, whereas some of it is, is more coarse. But they're monitoring um, forest loss and fires. And you just need to go on there at any time in the year and you start to see all of the fires that are being set around the world. Um, and of course, that, that has huge implications for the climate in itself, having that many fires. But those fires represent forests being lost. Um, and, and it's at a shocking rate. Um, now, you do have places like Indonesia that, that were, were one of the top countries for forest loss, um, but they've really been turning that around and we're seeing some real progress by the, by the Indonesian government to, to try and address forest loss. Um, so, so that's really incredible. And then you're seeing all of these big commitments from countries right now under this initiative called 30 by 30, which is uh, a, an initiative to protect 30% of the, the terrestrial and marine environments from each of these countries that's making this commitment. So there's big shifts here. There's, there's, there's a real sense that, um, and perhaps, you know, I feel like this is the single greatest opportunity we've had in conservation and in our global history for really shifting the conservation remit. And with efforts like 30 by 30, with big financial commitments that we're seeing both from, from governments, but also from private philanthropy, um, the, the stars are aligning here. There's a real opportunity to to get that eighty thousand acres a day down to nothing, um, and, and that's what we need to do. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over sixty percent of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Interesting. So, and I can imagine, uh, just based on what I know and some of what you're saying, that you know, if if we think of uh, you know conserving an ecosystem like a rainforest, uh, wherever it might be, as as an equation, and it's a complex, and there's multiple components uh, that that need to be addressed, uh, that uh, land conservation and setting up preserve systems is one of the important tools that you can use to address, you know, maybe not all, but, but many of those components to that equation at once. And um, that's why I've always really uh, admired the work that, that you and the Rainforest Trust and all of your partners are doing. Uh, so you mentioned Rainforest Trust, uh, in the beginning of our conversation, and and you you talked about that that one of the primary uh, focus areas for you guys are is creating preserves or doing uh, land conservation. Uh, so why don't if you don't mind, why don't you talk to us in a little bit more depth about what is it exactly that the Rainforest Trust is doing to 
to deal with these issues that you just mm-hmm. described? Sure. So what we do is we support organizations around the world to create these protected areas. And when I say protected areas, I, I'm using the term very broadly. There's, you know, we've talked about the IUCN. Um, They have a a standard definition of a protected area that really puts front and center the idea of biodiversity conservation. There's also a a new term that's coming about, OECMs, Other Effective Conservation Measures. And these are areas that, that again, are geographically defined, but perhaps don't put biodiversity conservation at the forefront, but rather it's an additional benefit of whatever that action is. So when we talk about protected areas at Rainforest Trust, we're talking about everything from from these OECMs, which might be a a community-owned forest or an indigenous reserve, through to national parks. And as we're moving forward as a a global community focused on on creating these protected areas, many more of our protected areas are going to be the OECM model, the supporting indigenous communities to gain legal rights to their lands. creating private protected areas, uh, which which can be often a really good strategy for conserving highly endemic, highly threatened amphibians and reptiles, where perhaps they're only found on uh, a couple thousand acres, um, or at least that's the stronghold of their population, where the, the creation of a national park is not going to be an option. Um, and so through through providing funding to support land purchase, um, you're able to create these private reserves that are then managed by an NGO, perhaps in partnership with the community, um, and can be really effective for, for amphibians and reptiles. Um, and so, yeah, what, what Rainforest Trust is doing is we're, we're helping to raise funds. We identify the projects and the partners that are able to execute the most effective conservation, and then we're supporting those groups. And and that might be an organization like the Endangered Wildlife Trust that, that Jean works for, um, that use a variety of different mechanisms to, to create uh, protection within habitats. Um, or it might be supporting indigenous communities directly and working with, with those groups to gain their rights. Um, we do a lot of work in, in the Peruvian Amazon um, through a group called Sadia, who for, for decades now have been working to support indigenous communities to get their land rights recognized. Um, and it, it's a really fantastic model where you're, you're supporting these communities, these, these individuals to gain their rights. And they're the ones that are managing the, the forest moving forward. Their communities have done this for generations. They've done a better job of it than anybody else can. So by supporting them, it, it, it's really moving forward the conservation agenda. It, it, it seems like a great model that the Rainforest Trust has taken to uh, partner to create these preserves. Because I can imagine they, we do a lot of land conservation here in the United States. And even just state to state within our country, um, it, it varies the laws and everything surrounding that. I can imagine uh, if you're working in countries around the world, the complexity. And so the concept of, of raising uh, the funds and, and you know prioritizing and then 
working with local NGOs or private individuals or whoever it might be, a government uh, who who really knows that region and, and knows on you know what's going on in the ground is is just a, probably an incredibly effective model. So I, I think that's great. What? How do you? So obviously you don't have unlimited resources. Uh, so how do you prioritize? How do you decide that, oh, we want to create this private reserve in, uh, you know, in the Congo versus this national park in the Amazon? How, how does that, just in a general sense, how does that process uh, happen yeah. within the organization? No, no, that's right. And we don't have unlimited resources. We do have to prioritize. So we use three mechanisms to prioritize the, the projects that we support. One is focused on species. So we want to protect those sites that are most important for critically endangered and endangered species. Again, referencing the IUCN there. Um, the second is areas that comprise of highly intact forests. So again, think of these big rainforests where there's little human impact. Um, so any areas like that are high priorities for us. And then the third category we have is areas that are important for, for climate change. So think about areas that this sequester a lot of carbon. So peat swamps, uh, mangroves. So those are, those are the three big criteria we use. Species, um, large intact forests and then climate change. Excellent. And if somebody, if people in the audience are interested, maybe have never heard about Rainforest Trust, but are working on, uh, you know, projects at this scale, I'm assuming they would have heard of you if that's the case, but how do you, there's the prioritization on the ground, meaning, you know, this is an important place or suite of species or whatever it might be, but, but how do you prioritize the partnerships? Meaning, do you have like an open call for mm -hmm. projects to come to you? Do you guys work very individually where you get your staff members working in regions and just developing the partnerships in other ways? How does, how does that function within the organization? Yeah, great question. So it, it's a bit of both. We have a, a team of conservationists within Rainforest Trust whose job it is to go out and look for projects. Um, so they're helping to build these partnerships. They, they, they start with this, this layer of information. Where are the most important places to protect? And then they take that information and start to look at who are the groups that are working there? Who has the most experience? And perhaps to create a protected area, it's actually going to take three or four different groups. It might not just be one. Um, and then working with them to create an application that, that, that we then submit to our board for, for review and then hopefully eventually funding. Um, so so we, we have three calls a year um, and we welcome people to submit applications to us, but almost exclusively it's about us going out there and trying to help build those partnerships. We very rarely get get um, applications out of the blue. Now, what I will say, particularly to those, those, those listeners out there that are, are working in conservation, are working in research across the tropics, is that there's often this idea that uh, no one's going to fund snake work. Nobody wants to support snakes. It's, I hear it the same for amphibians. I hear it the same for invertebrates, for plants. Well, rainforest trust prioritizes those species. We're far more likely to create a reserve for 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 an endemic amphibian than we are for broad-ranging elephants or something like that when we look at our species metrics. 
our species metrics want to save those species that are, are highly threatened and endemic. Um, so researchers should all start to think about how do you take that step from taking your research and turning it into conservation? Now, it's not the researcher's job necessarily to, to work out how to make that leap, but knowing that there are organizations like their own society, like Rainforest Trust, uh, and, and many others out there that, are, that want to hear from researchers, want to hear about where these important areas are to protect, and then we can work to, to connect them with the groups that can actually turn their research into conservation action on the ground. It's great, uh, really nice to hear that, uh, you know, that, that focus on, you know, these rare endemics that, you know, would result in conservation of species like amphibians and snakes, for example. So how, uh, I guess, last question about the trust. Um, and this just in, in a general sense, like, how, so how much does the Rainforest Trust invest annually in, let's just say, land conservation globally? Mm -hmm. I mean, are we talking hundreds of thousands of dollars U.S.? Are we talking millions of dollars U.S. annually? What's uh, And I'm sure it varies, but I'm just talking in a real general sense to give people the scale of your work. Yeah. yeah. Um, this year, uh, we approved about $45 million worth of grants. Um, and at the United Nations General Assembly this year, we made a commitment along with several other um, private philanthropies to we committed $500 million over the next 10 years to support habitat conservation. Um, so we've scaled up significantly over the last five years. Um, but, but moving forward over the next five years, we, our new strategic plan online commits us to, to $50 million a year for this, for this action, all of which is going to the field. That's impressive. You guys are changing the world. So that's, that's great work. Thank you for that. Thanks. Let's let's transition a little bit, and I want to start talking to you, Jean, and and kind of maybe dive in a little bit deeper a, a, on one of the partnerships and one of the projects, and and how the other side of the equation, not the Rainforest Trust, but the partners who are living and working regionally uh, to do the on the ground work. So. But before we get into that, uh, same question that I had for James. So where are you sitting today and, and you know, what do you do for a living in this, in this world of, of conservation? Yeah, so I am calling from the subtropics um, and I have to say I've never been to what you would consider a true rainforest. So James, I'm going to take you up on that sometime. Um, but I'm calling from Durban, South Africa. It's, it's pretty uh, tropical here. Um, always pretty warm and, and steamy. And we've had a very wet, wet summer so far. So rings true for that rainforest vibe. Um, and I work for the Endangered Wildlife Trust. And we have been going for nearly 50 years. Our logo is the cheetah paw print. So we started with mammals. And that's still one of our flagship programs and we're reintroducing cheetah to uh, Malawi and and all over southern Africa trying to keep that that meta population flow but I specialize in amphibians so it's only been quite recently that we've started to dabble in some snake conservation work as well but really it doesn't matter if we're looking at cheetahs or amphibians or snakes our approaches use really the same uh, broad sort of objectives which is around 
securing habitat for these very threatened species. So our focus is using threatened species in South Africa as our, our flagships for conservation action. And we really try to implement that. We really try to put the action into conservation. So we're an NGO um, and are entirely dependent on funding from partners like the Rainforest Trust to carry out these actions, including habitat protection, uh, improving the management then of those, those habitats. And we may find in some cases that a site is already entirely protected, but the management is not actually geared towards the threatened species that occur therein. Um, and then, of course, a huge component of our work, and I think it's equally important for amphibian and reptile conservation, is um, creating an appreciation for these animals. And, you know, that comes with, with all sorts of uh, things, especially here in Africa. There's some genuine fears, um, actually more so of the frogs than the snakes, uh, you might be surprised to hear. But it's really, really important to us that we communicate why these animals are, are so vital. The fact that they're declining should be worrying and that they represent really essential habitats. Obviously, in the case of amphibians, those are freshwater habitats. Uh, and, and reptiles, you know, in terms of those important um, ecosystem services and roles that they, they play in the food chain and all of that. So that's a really key part of our work as well and, and working with communities across the various landowner-type uh, sites where these species occur. Yeah, so your organization is, uh, is it based in South Africa? Is that accurate? Correct. So we are based... Out of South Africa, my program is the Threatened Amphibian Program, and uh, uh, currently our work is within the South African borders. We'd love to expand that, but through our African Crane uh, Program, we're working right up into Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, several countries through Africa. I mentioned our carnivore work. That also uh, extends quite far uh, across to neighboring countries. For now, our threatened amphibian and reptile work is focused on, on some very localized sites where these threatened species occur. Uh, you're literally looking at, like James inferred earlier, you know, one mountain range or one site where these species occur. They're just that endemic and localized and such habitat specialists that they've got really limited ranges. And, you know, as James said, it's great to look at protecting big areas. Um, but typically amphibians and reptiles haven't been prioritized for conservation because they do typically occur in small areas. So it's great that partners like Rainforest Trust recognize that and are not only going for, for the huge areas, but are very interested in protecting these very localized, very special sites for amazing little critters. Mm. And and so people like <laughs> us who... who uh, love or, or work on these kind of creepy, coral-y, slimy critters to most people in the world. Um, other people look at us and maybe think we're a little bit eccentric. And so I always like to hear where uh, real herpetological focused people, how you got there, meaning, you know, uh, how did you get into amphibians and snakes? Is this something you've you know, from a child or did you, were you really into conservation in general and then you moved uh, in this direction towards this group of animals? How did that all come about for you? 
Yeah, so I don't think it's the typical story where I was keeping snakes in my bedroom or frogs. I, I actually didn't really uh, like either of these creatures growing up very much at all. Um, I think like many people, I was afraid of them, didn't understand them. And as you say, I thought of them as creepy, crawly, slimy things that I would uh, just rather leave alone. But absolutely, I've always had an interest in conservation in general and a love of of animals and wanted to, you know, originally I was thinking of becoming a vet and realized that that, that really, as, as James says, that wouldn't have uh, filled my soul. Um, and, you know, I, I really wanted to work in, in conservation for South Africa. And I grew up in the Southern Drakensberg, which is the, the mountains here in KwaZulu-Natal. It's just a fantastic mountain range. Um, and I guess was exposed to that level of nature and and wanting to protect that um, and and work in these landscapes. And I was very fortunate uh, when I started my master's study, um, which happened to be in frogs up in the Drakensberg, and that was sort of how that project started. I said that that was where I was from, and there were all these taxonomic complications to sort out in these mountain frogs, um, and that's how I got into it. And I'd been living in London prior to that, and Day one, I thought, well, if, if this is going to be the job that beats a, a day in a London office any day, and actually these, these frogs are, are fascinating and really interesting, and that's it, you know, 15 years on, I'm still learning something new every day about these animals, and it's, it's great to, be, to have found this, this niche, really, in South Africa to work on amphibian and reptile conservation, and there's not a lot of that happening in general in South Africa. There's, there's some great research groups around the country, um, but my, my goal after doing a, a PhD on amphibians was to convert that information from research into real conservation action. Hmm. Interesting. So you're like an adult onset <laughs> frog fanatic which is which is great um i'm a little bit of an adult onset uh herpetologist as well but um anyway so so a little sidebar but like this i've just never thought of i know this is a snake podcast but i've just never thought of frogs in south africa obviously i know they occur there but tell me about the frogs in south africa like i mean is it a really diverse place from frog perspective are there any like superlative kind of interesting species that are worth mentioning but but why is why is the place that you're working uh so important from a uh frog perspective absolutely so yeah 100 percent they are we have a great diversity of frogs in the country um you know we we're not in the in the tropics but as a a largely arid country. I mean, huge, or well, the most of, of South Africa is very arid. Uh, and yet we have 134 species of frog in South Africa. So it's, it's pretty good going, you know, if we compare to, to Europe, um, that's fairly high species richness uh, and really great diversity. And that diversity or that the endemism um, increases from the West to the east of the country, but species richness sort of goes in reverse. So here on the east coast, let's say that's where it's really humid and moist and frogs like that. Um, and maybe just interesting to note that globally, 85% of frog species or amphibian species occur in forests. So they are very linked to forest habitats. And then as we move westwards 
across the country into the more Fynbos and, and drier landscapes, that's where we really start to see this very high endemism of this kind of one frog per mountain type situation. Um, and yeah, we've got everything from the giant bullfrog, which is the second biggest species of frog in the world, size of your dinner plate. Uh, and they're actually active <laughs> at the moment up on the half alt of the heavy rainfall. So they'll spend up to seven years underground in their burrows until rains enough and then they emerge and have a crazy breeding frenzy. Um, and all the way through to something that's the size of your thumbnail. And that's, you know, these, these mountain uh, top little toadlets. So yeah, really great diversity. Mm -hmm. And as I say, we focus it, in on the, the threatened species, which themselves are, it, represent a huge range of this diversity. Is the, the giant, we'll call it the dinner plate frog that you mentioned, uh, my, Amphibian taxonomy is horrible, but is that the serratifrees? Is that correct? What, what's that? No. No, so they are what's, they're called uh, pixicephalus, which pixicephalus. means box okay. head. Um, so what is serratifrees? Why is that in my head thinking of an, a large African frog? Is that wrong? You might be thinking of the Conroria, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is they are the Goliath frogs, and they are these huge river frogs from West Africa, the Cameroon. Um, they weigh up to three kilograms, and males move rocks around the rivers and make these pools, and they're also on the bucket list, and that's the largest frog in the world. So Africa is, is pretty good in terms of our record-busting <laughs> Frogs, <laughs> and we have no salamanders in in Africa or the southern hemisphere anyway. So we only start seeing the oh. really top of Africa, Morocco, and Egypt. But otherwise, yeah, yeah, just the frogs for for South Africa. Yeah, sorry to hear that. I live in like one of, if not the salamander biodiversity hotspots in the world. It's an incredible salamander place. But um, but as I've clearly showed, my knowledge of amphibians is is. <laughs> not that not that deep so um i'm definitely a snake guy but uh but anyways so that is all uh fascinating to me and then uh you know we did a whole episode with a colleague of mine from south africa a gentleman named uh brian maritz who you, who you may know and uh brian and i uh worked together with other people to form the IUCN Viper Specialist Group many years ago. But anyways, he did a whole episode on African snakes and talked quite a bit about uh, snakes in South Africa and, and and the southern half of the African continent. So um, we don't need to go into to great depth there, but but it is worth stating that, that South Africa and really just call it Sub-Saharan Africa is a really important place for snake diversity in the world as well. Um, and... So what I'd like to do now is, is talk a little more specifically about partnership with, uh, you know, between the two organizations and, and how you're working together to conserve these amazing animals in these amazing places. I mean, first of all, it seems like, as you mentioned, uh, you, your, your programs are, are primarily in South Africa or maybe exclusively in South Africa, at least with the amphibians. Um, so I think this might be a good example of, of what James was talking about, where the trust will actually work outside of tropical rainforests. Um, and, and you certainly correct me if I'm wrong. 
But uh, so, how, first of all, how did that partnership develop? Uh, did you have a uh, Jean? Did you have a project in mind? Something you're working on? You reached out to the trust. Is it was it one of these you know kind of out of the blue cold call type proposals that you sent in? Uh, was there a trust uh, staff member who who was kind of working on partnerships in the region? How did how did that all come together? How did the partnership form? Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Sure. So that staff member was James himself. And as he mentioned, he came out to South Africa and met me and brought along this huge book of threatened amphibians of the world, which I still have on the bookshelf. Um, And I was actually an intern for the IUCN and and helping with the back end of the the red list process. Um, And somehow that's how James and I got introduced. And then he came out and we were already working on a couple of sites. I remember trying to take him into a massively flooded wetland. We decided to <laughs> reverse out of that one. Um, so I'd met James in his, his previous life with the, the more of the amphibian side of things. And then once he moved over to Rainforest Trust, we sort of kept those conversations going and um, kept him up to date with the work we're doing and, we actually met the World Congress in Hawaii in 2016 and basically the rainforest team met the EWT team and we had some really great discussions across the board on different projects that were happening um, and in need of support for habitat protection. And we put in a number of, of those applications then uh, and from the amphibian side that was for, for two projects, which the Rainforest Trust is still supporting and that is... Um, here on the KwaZulu-Natal coast and working with communities to secure um, some really important coastal wetland sites, um, which tick the boxes of securing sites for an endangered species, as well as climate resilience. Um, and working in these quite complex landscapes where communities are literally living along the periphery of these wetland systems. So it's work that, that hasn't really been done before and again, Rainforest Trust accommodates for that and, you know, is very supportive of these landowner type agreements. And we use a, an approach called the Biodiversity Stewardship Program, um, which basically is um, around formally declaring sites while the property remains under the ownership of the landowner. Uh, and it's a landowner agreement. And then it's all built into the the management plans. And in fact, since 2016, 68% of the protected area estate in South Africa has been declared through biodiversity stewardship. So it's a very effective tool for declaring properties. It's, um, It's much cheaper as well than land acquisition for declaration. And then you actually already have your management system built into place because, you know, typically we're working with landowners who are already doing a lot of the right stuff and, and these processes just help to to tweak them along the way and make sure that those habitats, 
that support these species mm. continue to be managed in a, a productive or you know beneficial way to both people. Yeah, that is a that is a great uh, approach to land conservation. I mean, it sounds somewhat similar to to what we do here in the U.S. with uh, conservation agreements and some of our cost share programs. And so, uh, would it be would those programs in South Africa be somewhat similar to what I'm talking about here in the U.S., where um, this is like a, a you know, there's a legal binding documents where, you know, say resources are provided to a landowner and in turn, they're going to do X, Y, and Z in terms of maybe not developing or managing a property in a particular way. Is, is it legally blind, uh, binding or is it kind of just a, you know, a, a feel-good agreement between two groups? So there's different levels of it, but the higher the highest level is is nature reserve and that is legally binding. So that actually gets built into the title deeds of the property mm, okay. and so even if the current landowner sells that declaration basically remains in perpetuity and as I say the property is then tied to this this management plan so it's similar although the government doesn't make resources available to the landowner per se to enact that management but we have been able to build into our tax legislation benefits to landowners who declare their sites as nature reserves. So there's quite good return on that. We're also now exploring uh, carbon credits as a further kind of incentive if you like. But again, if you're managing your habitats correctly, you know, I think that James says we're really starting to see these shifts globally in landscape management where it's no longer beneficial to destroy habitats and we cannot keep seeing development um, that equals destruction as what is acceptable. Uh, it has to be the other way around where we rather are realizing the value of intact systems that support uh, biodiversity um, and, and human well-being at the end of the day. Hmm. Excellent. Very, very interesting. So, uh, it sounds like you guys have actually worked on multiple projects then. This wasn't one wetland that you came in to protect. It's a whole, uh, I guess, sounds like a series of projects. Is there a a common thread there, if you will, to the partnership, like a strategic thread? Like it's all based on a given, say, rare species or a given we're trying to protect X number, X percentage of the wetlands in this region? Or is are they kind of like various one-off projects that that you've identified and, and partnered with James on? So is that what I'm getting at? I don't know if that uh, if you followed there, but is there a, is there a, a little bit of a, a broader strategy to the partnership in that region as opposed to just project by project? So it is quite a range of projects and the, the focus has really been the threatened species component of it. Um, so let's say we're looking at these, these flagship threatened species that basically inform where that habitat protection needs to happen. Um, and I think James was particularly excited about this uh, podcast today um, for the Albany Adder project, which is a very small, cute viper. Um, and uh, as I say, it's been our, my first project um, on a, a snake. And um, we actually worked with Brian Moritz um, to develop the, the background of that. And I'm sure chatting to him, you'll know he's quite a dwarf adder expert himself. Um, and I think that is actually, I've been introduced to you by him around the 
the species uh, management plan and the IUCN assessment for for that species. So it's kind of touted as South Africa's most threatened species. Again, it's one of these highly, highly localised. We've been conducting surveys now since 2017, and to the best of our knowledge, it occurs in one spot. And, you know, that's that's out for, for debate, but, um, you know, uh, bring on the surveys that, you know, as I say, we've done quite extensive yeah. surveying around that area. And it's, it's just so tied to uh, this Bornfeld habitat, which is sort of scrubby grassland, like you really wouldn't get excited about it uh, from a rainforest perspective. Yeah. These uh, limestone outcrops. Um, and so there's all kinds of interesting land use and threats um, where this, this tiny little adder occurs. Yeah, the, the yeah, I remember that distinctively. You know, a lot of that interest uh, through Brian and through our um, uh, African regional chapter of the Viper Specialist Group came at the time when I was uh, still a chairperson of the Viper Specialist Group. I've since uh, rolled out of that um, role, but yeah, that was an interesting. Uh, situation there. So uh, staying with that for a minute, you talked about it, real localized endemic. You talked about a little bit about the habitat that uh, that it lived in, but what is the specific project for that species? Are you working on or have you uh, protected that, that small geographic range of the species? Yeah, so that's exactly what we're working on. So we, we did about... Uh, three years of kind of feasibility phase and just really try to get a good handle of where that core habitat is, um, which, as I say, we've really narrowed down to this, this one property. Um, and so it's implementing that biodiversity stewardship process with that landowner and developing management plan around, uh, you know, the land use practices there. And, you know, what's really quite interesting is that um, – even on the, the national park uh, nearby, which is the Addo Elephant National Park, you may have heard of. It's obviously got quite a focus on the elephants. It's chock-a-block full of the things, really. Um, <laughs> and ironically, there's been one record, unfortunately, dead on road, of the Albany Adder within that national park, uh, and yet within this protected area, which is um, also a wind uh, a wind energy facility as well as a limestone mine, um, although those uh, efforts have been um, curtailed. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just very interesting how you need to consider all the different land use types when your focus is a species like this. And again, Rainforest Trust being a, a completely understanding partner, um, you know, realises this value and that if we don't do something for that site, we're potentially losing this the species, um, and and we need to look at it through that lens. And you know, wind development may not have been great if we were trying to protect a vulture species, mm-hmm. but in this case, the the population there is subsisting. Great. Well, I'm glad that uh, that you guys are there doing that work. So, Jean, if uh, if anyone from our audience is interested in learning more, or hopefully going on and donating support to your nonprofit, how would they find that? How would they do that? Sure. So the 
the easiest way, I guess, is through our website, which is www.ewt.org.za. And you can find more information on our various projects there. Um, as I say, we, there's 13 programs, probably with close on 100 projects covering all sorts of things. But uh, hopefully the audience is, is interested in the, in the snake project. Um, and there's various options there to donate. Um, otherwise, I'm also happy to share my contact details if people want to get hold of me directly. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. So, James, uh, first, same question for you. If people are interested in learning more about the Rainforest Trust and um, maybe going on and supporting the organization, um, how would they do that? Rainforesttrust.org. Perfect. That's our thank website, you. and that'd be great to visit. And it's a new website, so we welcome yeah. people to come and have a look. Yeah. Uh, I've got one more question for each of you. So, James, uh, we talked about rainforests in general. We talked about the, the major global issues. We talked about uh, the great work that you, your organization and partners are doing, and we gave these specific examples talking with Jeanne. Uh, what is, what's the future? hold for rainforests i mean what what are your just your your you know your 10 10 line just summary of this is the future of rainforests are you glass half full glass half empty where are we it's it's more than half full i i think this this is our time this is our time as a as a species to turn this around We've had centuries of destroying these forests, but now we have both the the interest and the capacity to turn this around. I'm really optimistic that that this is the beginning of the change. Good. Glad to hear that. Okay, Jean, I'd asked James this question, but I've been to Virginia many times and you know, I know he's traveled the world, but uh, you live in, in, to me, a much more interesting place in some ways. And I love, listen, first of all, yeah. let's imagine that, we are out on a field excursion somewhere in a national park there. And we are looking for, uh, we're out looking for snakes and we're sitting around a campfire at night. And just like I might tell you about that trophy fish that I caught on my last trip here, I want you to tell me your best snake story. Do I have time for two quick ones? <laughs> so sure. I think, the best snake story for me obviously has to be my first encounter with an Albany adder. So, you know, I'd been writing the proposals and sort of in the background of these processes to, to get the funding um, for the EWT for this, this work and then managed to get out to site last year, March, April. And, you know, really all of our records of the species, we've just done some very extensive um surveying with all kinds of trap arrays and different methods but by far the, the road cruising seems to turn them up the best and yeah we were literally 13 minutes into a road cruise at dusk and there was this little squiggle growing across the road and put on brakes and and there it was so really tiny spectacular if it's going to convince anyone that snakes are cute this is your species so that was fantastic <laughs> to see them in the field and yeah we'd really like to to get the guys from rainforest trust out at some point when we stop putting bands on each other um to come and come and <laughs> see the species so that was great and then you might see that i've been fighting with my dog here i managed to sneak back in so she's my herp dog <laughs> she's 
she's still a puppy, but she's great at alerting us to anything that's going on. She found a red-eared slider, which is an invasive species in this country. The other day, um, she barks at rhino beetles or whatever's going on. So she's really good at alerting us to snakes. And I live on a property that's, that's dripping with the things. So I've got two boys and unlike me growing up, they absolutely love anything that creeps and crawls and then get very upset with me if I don't catch whatever it is that the dog has, has found. So <laughs> we've had night adders and all sorts of things uh, in the garden that have been detected by the herp dog. <laughs> uh, excellent. Great. Well, uh, again, I, I thank you both so much for all the work that you're doing. And I thank you... Uh, for joining us today. I learned quite a bit. And I just wanted to thank our audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.